Welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. My guest today is Matt Savoca. He's Executive Vice President of Cutta Technologies, which is a manufacturer and supplier of command control communication software applications and components with a focus on government and defense applications. He graduated from Embry-Riddle's Prescott campus in 1994 with a degree in aerospace engineering. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Alan. All right. Did I get all that right at the top? You did. Yeah, that was that was good. All right. Uh, so you came to Embry-Riddle. Uh, this is the part that like really fascinates me. You came as a non-traditional student uh, and you started sort of straight out, of, not straight out of high school, but in your mid-20s. Um, what were you doing at the time and why did you decide to leave that illustrious career and go to college? Yes, it was extremely illustrious. Um, I was uh, I, I had was actually out of my uh my house, my my mom's house at 17 years old. Um, so my senior year of high school was pretty much living with my sister and working at Peter Piper Pizza. And and um, so when once I graduated college, I'm sorry, once I graduated high school, it was my first thought wasn't I need to go to college. My first thought was I still need to pay my rent somehow and, and buy myself a car. So it was a lot of working uh, fast food type jobs. Um, you know, became a manager at Peter Piper, went to Kentucky Fried Chicken, became a manager there. And then, you know, saw a lot of my friends when I was 23 years old, a lot of my friends graduating college, saw my sister in college and went, you know, I I, I probably need to do that. So went to community college down here in Phoenix, uh, Paradise Valley Community College for a couple of years, and then decided aerospace engineering was what I wanted to do and, and uh, went up to Prescott for the remaining three and a half. So I was on the five and a half year program through college, but but I got there. <laughs> there you go. I think I took about five, six years as well. Um, I'm curious, what was the draw of uh, aerospace engineering in particular and, and the Prescott campus? Uh, well, it was, you know, and again, I, I didn't have this traditional sense of, you know, high school counselors helping me figure out what it was I wanted to do. I did have a friend, uh, my friend Tom, who had gotten an aerospace degree. I'd always been good at math and, and you know, pretty, pretty good student overall and wanted to do engineering. And I did have a friend at community college who wanted to be a pilot. And so he's the one who introduced me to Embry-Riddle. He was like, hey, let's take a road trip up to Embry-Riddle and, and check the campus out. So I drove up there with him and, and just fell in love with the campus once I saw it. And I just, I just kind of looked down the degree programs and went, well, they have aerospace engineering. I I guess I'll do that. And so that was how I got into it. It wasn't really, uh, it wasn't some big grand plan. It was, I, I stumbled into it a little more than anything. If you went up there in the early 90s, it was still a lot of the old uh, slump block buildings. The campus wasn't all that old at the time yet. It, no, it wasn't. Yeah, one of the first big ones they built wasn't even there yet. So it was it was all just the the little huts that we had. And, and that was what drew me to it, really. It, it just felt I don't know. It felt it felt welcoming, and uh, just walking around the campus, I just remember just saying that I, I could actually go to school here. This would be amazing, and and so that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. So were you um, when you ended up there, were you still like working full time as well as going to school full time? I was. Yeah. So I still. I at the time I was was bartending um, to get myself through college. So. When, we moved, when I moved up here, I got a little apartment, got a job bartending at the at the Prescott Mining Company at the time, and then uh, then the Gurley Street Grill and a couple other places up there. Um, 
and so yeah so you know during during my time in college i ended up getting married i had a child and and was working so it wasn't like you mentioned it wasn't the traditional path that most of the kids take today or even back then <laughs> yeah well that's that's really hard to do is uh, you know go to school full time and work full time and have all these other things going on uh you like a master of time management no, that's why my GPA was only three point zero 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 zero. It was, you know, it was it was just one of those things that you know I I I just decided I really wanted this as a career. I really wanted to be an engineer and was was going to make it happen. Luckily, my fiance slash wife, who is still my wife today, was very very supportive and. Um, that just, that just goes a long way towards, towards helping you get through those sorts of things. Um, but you're right. Yeah, it was, it was difficult because you work, you know, you go to school during the day, being a bartender at night means you get off at one in the morning, you know, uh, you come home, you do some homework and get back up and go back to school and do it the next day. So yeah, it was, it was a bit of a struggle at times. Right, right. Uh, a lot of college students who are leaving the bar at one in the morning aren't necessarily leaving work. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, they've got their homework done already. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so you were also president of the Student Government Association uh, uh, at the time. How how did you end up uh, deciding to do that? Well, that was uh, due to one of my good friends up there, my friend Russ, Russ Knack. Um, he's the one who basically convinced me to run in the first place. He was editor in chief of the of Horizons, the newspaper. And at the time, uh, Dr. Sliwa was the president of the university. And there was a lot of talk about moving the campus from Prescott to down to Williams Air Force Base. And uh, Russ got wind of that. And, and as the editor in chief of the paper, he pulled me aside one day and said, listen, you got to run for student government president. I'll be editor in chief of this newspaper. And we got to we got to fight this. I was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and so he helped me with my campaign. Uh, we had a whole big campaign plan uh, worked out. I, you know, I went and knocked on every single dorm room door and introduced myself to the to the students and said, "This is why I'm running." And, and I ended up winning, um, which was which was really a, a little bit of a surprise because, uh, like I said, I was a non traditional student. I was probably 28 years old at the time, uh, but it also helped that I was a bartender in town. So, you know, I did know a lot of the students and a lot of people. And uh, I think that probably helped me out a little bit there, too. But, it, you know, it was it was a fun time. It really, really was uh, really enjoyed my time. Got to sit on the board of trustees uh, for that year for the school um, and just yeah, really enjoyed that. Do you think you were able to, you know, were you able to succeed in uh, keeping? Well, I guess obviously Prescott is still in Prescott. <laughs> so. That's right. I, you know, I, I like to think that we, we made a difference there. Um, you know, Russ would write articles uh, once a month about about what was going on. And, uh, you know, there was Joyce Lobbs was uh, one of the administrators there. And she got me all the addresses of all the parents of the students at, at, uh, at Prescott campus. So I wrote out a letter to them all. And I said, here's what's going on. Here's what the president wants to do. And then I included the fax numbers. At the time, it was fax numbers of all the, all the board of trustee members and said, please pick five of these and, you know, pick the, pick the chairman of the board and then four others and send them your support for the Prescott campus. And uh, at the next board meeting that the chairman of the board stood up and, and gave me the floor first and said, you know, my fax machine hasn't stopped for a week. 
<laughs> he said, I think that student government president and Prescott had something to do with that. And he said, I think he takes some of the blame for that. Uh, you know, do you have anything you want to say? And I said, I won't take the blame, but I'll take the credit for it. And, uh, you know, just kind of explained our position and that, you know, the, how beautiful Prescott was, what a great campus it was. And we didn't want to see it moved. And uh, Dr. Smith at the time was the uh, he's he's still at the Prescott campus. Um, he was the faculty rep, and he also played a big role uh, in, in a lot of the documentation they submitted to the board uh, to keep the campus here. And uh, yeah, we, we think we played a role in that. And so, we're, you know, we're pretty proud of that. That's great. That's great. Um, are you still like close with any of your classmates from the time? Yeah, a couple of my, you know, a couple of my best friends, uh, Cam and Russ, are, are um you know, we're definitely still great friends, talk a lot, see each other a lot. Uh, and our class, you know, it, we try to do a 10-year, we did a 10-year reunion, a 20-year reunion, a 25-year reunion. There's a pretty good core group of us who, who get together in Prescott um, for October West during those times. Um, so we, we do stay in touch and it's, it's really, really great. That's cool. Uh, so the year come, uh, 1994 to 2021 is that is that one of your five year that's not one of your five years is it no no we i think we're uh, yeah i'm not i'm not real good at math anymore so (laughs) (laughs) uh so where are we at right now 94 2004 14 yeah 19 i think was our 25 right so we're coming up we're coming up on our 30 Okay, so uh, COVID hasn't thrown a thrown you guys completely for a loop yet. You're still on track. That's right, we are. Okay, <laughs> good. Um, so you graduated in '94 and you went to work at Honeywell as a as software engineer, but you didn't actually know any programming yet at the time, did you? I did not. No. <laughs> How did you pull that off? Um, well, that was yeah, that was interesting. I. I you know, I had trouble finding a job right out of school. And, and a part of that was um, because I just didn't do things the way I was supposed to. You know, I didn't have an internship. Um, I didn't really prepare properly, um, you know, my junior and my senior year to, to get an engineering job. It was, I, you know, like we said, I had so many things going on in my life that I just, it's just something I just didn't do properly. So when I did graduate, I was, you know, I kind of waited until I graduated and went, okay, now I need to find a job. And luckily I had a, a friend who worked at Honeywell at the time. Uh, and he, he brought me on, he ended up getting me a job there uh, as a software guy. And he explained to me, he said, Hey, this is a software job. And I said, I don't know any software. Um, I can barely copy a file to a disc, you know, I'm like, I don't, I really don't know much software. And he's like, I'll teach you, I'll teach you. And, and he did. He really, he mentored me. Um, he remember sitting at his kitchen table every night and pulling up a computer and showing me how to program and giving me books. And um, he really, you know, he he gave me a job when I didn't deserve a job. Let's put it that way. And, uh, <laughs> I, I'll always remember him for that. And uh, his name's Mike, by the way. And um you know, I just I just studied hard and learned everything I could and realized that this was my chance to actually, you know, have a real job, um, which I always defined as I didn't want to smell like my workplace when I got home. That was always <laughs> <laughs> so as long as I could go to work and come home and my wife wouldn't say, you got to change your clothes. 
um, I, was, I felt like I had a real job. So um, I was pretty happy, uh, you know, working at Honeywell. It was I, I had Mike to help me. And a couple years in uh, another guy named Tim was, you know, he was a really, really good, pretty high up guy at Honeywell who kind of also took me under his wing and, and taught me a lot of things. And uh, I was just very lucky to have some real good mentors there. Yeah. Well, and certainly impressive that you were able to like jump in with both feet and, uh, and figure it out and, uh, not immediately get canned for not knowing what you were doing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, and part of it is, is, I mean, college really taught me how to, how to solve problems and think logically. And a lot of software is, is doing that, you know, solving problems and thinking logically. And the, the rest is how you do it and the language and how you write it. But the, the real solving of the problem and thinking a problem through is is probably the real skill that I learned in college. Not necessarily how to solve an equation and how to you know you know carry this over to here and and this weighs this and how much does this weigh you know all that all those weird problems you do. The real result is you learn how to solve problems. And so whether you end up programming or doing something different that you don't have a lot of experience in. Um, a lot of times you can kind of figure those things out as you go. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the language is syntax, but if you've got the, 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 the logic part of it in your head, that's right. you can figure out the syntax as you go along. Right. That's right. Absolutely. So how did you end up going into business for yourself? So after about six and a half years, I think it was at Honeywell, um, I had met a guy, my business partner named Doug, and we became friends at Honeywell. And we really just started talking about, opening our own business. Um, you know, at the time, uh, contracting houses were, were kind of all the rage. A lot of people were leaving their engineering jobs and starting these contracting houses. And then you just kind of farm people back to Honeywell or wherever it is you're working. And so we, we saw a few people doing that. We had some other ideas with another guy that we had talked to about a business that kind of fell through. And eventually we just, you know, he and I just kind of pounded it out and decided that, hey, let's let's do this. Let's start this business. We, the initial plan was to, you know, I had created this piece of software uh, that interfaced to some Honeywell components, and we were going to try to sell that to Honeywell third parties as an easy way to interface these Honeywell components. And we never sold one of them, right? So <laughs> the day, we, luckily, the day I quit and the day he quit, our bosses had called us back up from Honeywell and said, hey, do you want to just turn around and contract back here at Honeywell? And we both said, yeah, sure. You know, we'll get some revenue in right away. <laughs> and then yeah. that, that was really how we ended up getting our start. We worked out of his loft um, at his house for, for a while there, uh, kind of doubled our salary right out of the gate because we just we were just billing Honeywell back at a, at a higher rate. And then before you know it, it was, uh, oh, hey, we need some of this work done. You guys, could you guys hire a couple people? I said, sure. So we hired some people and then, you know, we had a couple of his bedrooms full of engineers and <laughs> in his house. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really quite humorous. Um, we eventually, you know, got an office and, and built that business up to, we had about 40 people in uh, 2006. Uh, and then we sold that part of it off and just to focus more on military stuff, we kind of had a turn in our business to focus on some military things and, and ended up growing that up. So, yeah, a lot of it was a lot of it was good luck. A lot of it was 
the hard work. A lot of it was, uh, you know, just being in the right place at the right time on, on some of these contracting, the way this contracting stuff worked out. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it's been, it's been a good ride. <laughs> so, so what you do is these uh, sort of control and communications modules for un unmanned systems. Uh, from what I've seen uh, is that it, we're talking about like a handheld computer that used to sort of remotely pilot a drone. You can tell me a little bit more about that, like what the specific applications are, of what uh, what you guys work on. Sure, sure. So just a little bit of the history. We we started the business in 2001. And like I said, we started as consulting to Honeywell. Well, in 2003, there was there's a program that's called the SBIR, the Small Business Innovation Research Program, which for anyone that has a small business that does any work with the Department of Defense should really look into these SBIRs, as we call them. There was one out there that was looking for UAV controller on a Dell PDA. At the time, we had Dell PDAs. We didn't have phones, really, like, like we have today. Right. And so we looked at that and went, this seems like something we could do, right? I mean, we've, we've got all these really, really smart engineers that know all this stuff about flight. We're all avionics engineers, software engineers. This seems like something we could do. So we write a proposal on it. These SBIRs, you, you know, phase one is worth about 100000 and then phase two was worth 750000 So for a small business, you went a couple phase twos, you're talking almost $2 million there. That's a pretty good little business, a good way to get a business going. Yeah. Um, so we wrote on this one, and we ended up winning it. There was 26 other competitors, and they picked two, and we ended up winning. It was an Army program. And the interesting thing about that SBIR is that contract is still going today. That that has been the basis of the, all of our unmanned systems work was that SBIR in the beginning, a $100,000 contract in 2003. So on top of that, now we have won, we've won another 20 of these SBIRs, right? And moved them all pretty much to phase two. I think two of them we didn't move to phase two, but, mm -hmm. um, and then gotten other funding on top of that. Um, and, and just really built off that initial SBIR. And so what today the software we're doing is mostly ground control station software. So we're doing the software right now, a program called TOGA with the Army, where we are writing the software and verifying the software that controls all the small UAS in the Army. They call them UAS now, Unmanned Aerial Systems, instead of and many aerial vehicles. So oh, sure. we'll, we'll go with that. So UAS, but the smalls include what they call the SRR, which is the short range reconnaissance, which is like a quad rotor yeah. that the soldiers will use in the field just for short range. They have the medium range reconnaissance, what they call the MRR, which is the Raven uh, bird by built by AeroVironment. And then they have the LRR, which is currently the Puma, but they may be replacing that. And that's also built by AeroVironment. But we, we currently are doing under contract to develop all the software to control those birds for the Army right now. So that's our, that's our big program right now. Do those go like beyond visual line of sight? Yes. Okay. So how, how, do the, uh, how does the video communicate from the, the UAS back to the device where you're actually controlling it? Uh, it's all radio. AeroVironment actually has, for the, for the MRR and LRR, they have a little radio uh, and they goes in the controller and it talks to the bird and you control it. Now, most of it is is sending commands to an autopilot 
on the aircraft. So they that actually goes now you can stick fly it too, but you can also say, here's some waypoints, go fly here, 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 and here, and it will go fly those and send you video back. Okay. So if you're not sending the signal like up to a satellite and back down, you don't have to worry about latency as much. That's right. That's okay. right. Yep. Interesting. So our our you know, we, we do some other things too. We're doing um future programs, one, you know, program called A Team, which is autonomous teaming for another army division where, you know, here's where you 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 launch what they call an ale. It's a bird that gets launched from like a helicopter and then it goes out where there's no comms and it will go and survey areas, you know, get data, do some computations on it and bring it back. And so those are those are pretty cool. Those are called air launched effects. So it's basically launched from another bird. So the ALs are the new big thing uh, that are coming out. Cool. Um, yeah. So a lot of this equ equipment, if you know, the military is using it out in the field, it has to meet various you know military specifications. All this alpha alphanumerical alpha soup. Um, do you find it difficult or limiting to build the military spec? Is there anything that's sort of unique about these sorts of applications? It's super, super easy. No, <laughs> no it, it, you know, there's, we mostly do software. So, so there's different specs for hardware and, and for software. Um, one of the good things, at least from our perspective, that we're seeing the military move more towards is um, what they call DO-178. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's the, that's software. That's like the FAA standard for certification for airborne software. So you have level, you know, DO-178C is, is the, the version they're on right now. And then you have levels A to E, where A is, you know, flight critical, dang it, you know, something goes wrong there, that's catastrophic, terrible. And E is, you know, there's no effect if something goes wrong. And then you've got the levels in between. So we've seen the military starting to adopt that paradigm. Um, and, and they don't adopt it exact you know but it's pretty close and that's good for us i mean we we were one of the original people to try to bring that to the uas world because we think it's a good way to develop software um, and it's it's it is catching on so some of the stuff we've done like we've did this big ground-based sense and avoid program for the for the army um, which we're still working but that was all developed with that paradigm in mind you know which is you've got requirements You've got software, you've got test, and then you've got to link all those together and trace them all. So all your all your code traces to all your requirements, which trace to all your tests, and uh, and that so that's you know doing developing software in that paradigm is is something we're used to and we're good at, and so we we're glad the military is adopting, starting to adopt at least those standards. So it's 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 a good thing. I'm I'm curious to drill in just a little bit more on that. Uh, so are these uh, these paradigms, these requirements, um, is that uh, are those levels that they have to do with sort of the reliability of the software and not getting a blue screen of death while you're in the middle of stick flying the drone? Or is it more about cybersecurity and preventing outside attackers from taking control? Or is it all of that? Well, the the original the the DO-178 stuff is the is what you said first, more like make sure the software doesn't break when it runs, right? And make okay. sure it does what it says you're gonna do. If you have a requirement that says, you know, when I move this stick, this shall happen, right? <laughs> Whatever yeah. it is, um, you have to test and show that when you do this action, 
this happens. Um, you have all kinds of requirements uh, on the hardware and the software interacting with the hardware to make sure you don't get blue screens of death, to make sure these things don't happen. The cyber stuff is what they call information assurance, which is IA, and that's a, that's a little that's separate from these other things that we do. Um, mm -hmm. So we are doing some IA work, but the most of the work we do is is in the development of the applications as opposed to worrying about the cyber threats. Right, right. Well, and if these are uh, communicating uh, to the drone via radio, the cyber threat isn't. Uh, you know, you're almost air gapped there. Right. Yeah. And they have, you know, the, the army is very, very, very serious about information assurance. And there's a, mm -hmm. you know, there is a, there's a whole science to that too. Um, and like I said, we do some of that, but uh, our parent company does a lot more of that. Sierra Nevada does a lot more of that. Yeah. Uh, well, so government contracts always have this sort of air of desirability, like rent control departments in New York or something, right? It's like, <laughs> They're hard to get, but once you get one, you're set for a long time. So I want to know if like, is any, is that, is that true? Is that real? Like you, do you feel like that's legit? You know, <laughs> we hear all the time about, you know, the $500 hammer and these sorts of things that people, you know, charge these government contracts, all these crazy things. And we get audited so much that I don't know how anyone gets away with that stuff in the government contracting world, honestly, but it's. <laughs> You know, there is a certain amount of of security in the sense that if you're on a well-funded program and you're doing a good job, the money generally will keep flowing, right? That's a it's 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 different than a a working doing work like for Honeywell, you know, because they're they don't have this influx of taxpayer dollars every year that go, hey, this is in the budget, it's funded. You know, when you're doing work for a private company, sometimes they just decide, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. And they go a different direction and you're, you're gone. Government is a little different. You know, you've got a, a program of record that's got a funding line to it and you, you get on that. And every year, you know, you're going to get X amount of funding. That's great. But it's not it's not that easy right? <laughs> because there is there's a whole lot of programs that you get that are you know, half a million dollars and you, you do that and then you're scratching and clawing for the next couple hundred thousand and then the next million and the next this. And so it is a, it is a battle. It's contracting is difficult. Um, you know, trying to find contract vehicles, contract mechanisms so that they can give you money. Um, it's not like a private company again, who they can just say, okay, here, here's your money. The government, you have to have these contract vehicles and you've got to be on these different vehicles and it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough, but Overall, um, it's worked out very well for us. So we, we've got a lot of fun work and a lot of good contracts. That's great. Um, now, you've established a scholarship at, here at Embry-Riddle, and a, a little bit of an unusual one at that. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about it? Sure. So, uh, you know, I talked a little about my background, right, where, where I, was, I wasn't mm -hmm. a traditional student. I did have to work, like truly work through college. Um, you know, did get married in college and, and had a kid in college. Um, and so there was, you know, I, unless unless I was Albert Einstein, I was not getting a 4.0 GPA. There's just no way. I just didn't have the time. But I also really needed help financially. And and so whenever I would look at scholarships, they were never there for me. Right? I was a, I literally was a 3.000 um, student. Um, 
and I had a need, but you know, there was no real, it was difficult to find scholarships. And so I wanted to create a scholarship that I would have qualified for when I was in school. And, and so that was, that was my intent and, and my wife's intent when we created this was um, we wanted a GPA of 3.4 or below. And I, I know that sounds a little, a little counterintuitive, but we also wanted the, the student to be working. We call it the working student scholarship. And so we wanted to really try to help someone who, who was working, who was, we know was struggling to make the tuition. It, it is just very difficult to keep a high GPA when you have to work also through school. You know, our thought is, look, the, the kids that are 3.9 and 4.0, they, they, they have other avenues for scholarships. There's a lot there for them. And, and I know everyone could always use more, but there just isn't a whole lot for the, the other kids that are down there at the 3.0 and 3.1 and 3.2 and, and 2.8, right? I mean, whatever it is, I don't care what the GPA is. They need help. And, and that's what our scholarship is for. That's really great. All right. Well, Matt, so we're going to take a short break and then we're going to continue on to the lightning round. All right. Thank you. Did you recently get a new job or a promotion or a major award? Or maybe you shared a flight deck with an all alumni crew or found out that most of your engineering department is all Embry-Riddle alumni. Here at Embry-Riddle's Office of Alumni Engagement, we're always looking for great stories and career updates to share from you. We'd love to hear about your points of pride. If you submit a photo together with a short description, you could be published in our class notes section of our website, be included in Lyft Magazine, and be featured on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Visit alumni.erau.edu careers for all the details. Submit your story and we'll share it with the world. That's at alumni.erau.edu careers. All right, so now it's time for our lightning round. It's not necessarily fast. We just couldn't think of a better name. I'm going to give you five questions, and you're going to give me five answers. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, so as soon as it's safe to do so post-pandemic, you you can t uh, you can take a cruise to any location. I understand you're, you enjoy going on a cruise here and there. Uh, what do you think you're going to go? I think my wife and I have Spain high on our list. Um, always wanted to see Barcelona, always wanted to see Madrid. Um, we've seen a fair amount of Europe, but uh, Spain is one place we've never been. So that's that will probably be number one for us. That's great. Uh, running to the Bulls, or uh, is that not your alley? You know, I would like to try that, but I just have a feeling that would get vetoed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe uh, armored pants, huh? That's right. That's right. <laughs> but then, you know, depending on her mood, my wife might just say, why don't you go ahead and run with the bulls today? <laughs> oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. So if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? You know, I remember when I, when I was at Embry-Riddle, I was sitting in the library one day and I was just browsing for books and I found a book called what do you care what other people think by Richard Feynman? And uh, oh. I didn't know who Richard Feynman was, but I kind of liked the color, the color of the cover. And it, I started flipping through it and sounded interesting. And um, one of the best books I've ever read. He was a, a Nobel Prize winning physicist uh, in, from California in the, in the late 60s. And uh, just an incredible, incredible man. I ended up reading all his books and, and most of his essays. 
Um, but that one particular book, uh, What Do You Care What Other People Think, was was just a fantastic book and really opened my eyes to a lot of things. That's really cool. All right, so to go uh, completely lowbrow on you, uh, <laughs> who's your favorite? Who's your favorite cartoon character? Um, well, it, I guess the cartoon character is. I, I I love Spider-Man. I guess he's a cartoon character. Um, when I was yeah. a kid, I collected Spider-Man comic books and had just about the whole set of them. Um, but I, I I've always been a huge Spider-Man fan. Um, my favorite my favorite comic strip is the far side and i i just it, i know that's a little not quite a character but i absolutely i love the far side i think that's just he's just brilliant that's great uh, the gary larson those single panel that's right uh, yeah that's i right. used to read those a lot oh yeah yeah they're funny uh so picture in your mind a, a grilled cheese sandwich like the most perfect one you could possibly have and you're about to take a bite out of this thing right what's in it what are you sinking your teeth into Grilled cheese sandwich. So it's got to have some American cheese. A lot of them. Not 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 too much American cheese. Like you don't want it too cheesy. But it would probably have sourdough bread first. It's got to be sourdough. okay. Toasted, and then you've got the cheese in the middle. It's got to be American. Maybe one other kind of cheese. Maybe maybe even a white cheese in there, like a, a Swiss or something. But then a, some kind of tomato in there maybe some roasted tomatoes avocado and bacon and right on. yeah i think that's you know the yard house used to have used to have an amazing grilled cheese sandwich they changed it up i'm very disappointed that they changed it up but the <laughs> the old grilled cheese sandwich at the yard house was was tops in my book but it was similar to what i just described that's great all right. So if you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have, this is, might be a little controversial, but I'm going to have to say Jesus. I, 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 there is so much debate about the realness of, of God and what really happened and was Jesus a real person or not. And, and, uh, just there, it, it just sort of feels like our whole society is centered on that question. And if I could just go and be him for a week, I think I'd have all those answers. And I could just come back and I could say, "Hey guys, this is all all good," or "Hey guys, you got this wrong. Here's here's how it really is." It just it just feels like I don't know. We have wars over this. We have mm -hmm. uh, there. It's 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 pretty amazing what an influence. Um, Jesus has had on our society. So I'd like to just go back and be him for a week and come back with, with the real, real story and what's really going on there. That's great. Yeah. It sure would help to have a lot of a historical clarity from that time. That's right. So I'll, I'll do my part <laughs> if I can. I, that, that's what I'll do. <laughs> All right. I appreciate your public service there. Sure thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That wraps it up. Thanks very much, Matt, for joining us for the Talent Talks podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Alan. It was a pleasure. All right. Talent Talks is a production of the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement and the Students of Wicked Radio. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. And Matt, where are we reaching you? Uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Excellent. Uh, this episode was recorded by me and edited by Cindy Puckett. 
Edmund Odarte and Michelle Day are our program managers. Bill Thompson is Executive Director of Alumni Engagement, and Tony Brown is Executive Director of Communications. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our show or suggest a guest to us, we'd love to hear from you. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. We'll see you next time.